Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every fortnight, I speak to leading sustainability and environmental thinkers and practitioners, to scientists and economists, business leaders and investors, NGOs, as well as psychologists, writers and artists. We discuss the sustainability imperative and explore the key environmental and sustainability challenges from a wide variety of perspectives. We explore the latest thinking, what's working, and new ideas in sustainability, resilience, and regeneration. Global Witness, a pioneering campaigning NGO that exposes the environmental and human rights abuses by some of the world's biggest companies and most powerful political figures. For 25 years, they've campaigned against the exploitation of the Earth's natural resources, the destruction of indigenous peoples, and corruption that has siphoned billions of dollars from the poorest countries. Global Witness doesn't just expose the abuse of power, it works to transform the systems that allow this abuse to flourish unchecked. Find out more at globalwitness.org. I'm very pleased today to welcome Harjit Singh to the Sustainability Agenda. Harjit is Head of Global Political Strategy at Climate Action Network International, a network of over 1,500 government organisations in more than 130 countries, working to promote government and individual action to limit human-induced climate change to ecologically sustainable levels. Until recently, he led ActionAid International's climate change work globally. He's a member of the United Nations Technical Expert Group on Comprehensive Risk Management under Warsaw International Mechanism for Loss and Damage. Thank you very much, Harjit, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Thank you, Fogal, for having me. My pleasure. So, uh, can you, t- you're, you're, you're in, in India today and we are uh, beginning of November, uh, big, big focus, tension, COP27, um, looking forward to talking to you about that and uh, get your perspective on what matters and what what, what to look out for, uh, your expectations and so forth. But before we go into some t- details about that, can you tell us a little bit about uh, what you do, Harjit, and your background? Sure. Um, So I uh, currently work with Climate Action Network International as the uh, head of global political strategy. Um, And I'm also associated with the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty Initiative as the global engagement director. And and I'm based in New Delhi. Uh, And I'm also a co-founder of um, a social enterprise called Satat Sampada, which is uh, promoting environmental solutions such as organic food, uh, which we promote in India and beyond. Very good, very good. Uh, I usually at the beginning ask to to get a sense. Clearly, you've you've been involved in, in environmental issues for for uh, decades in, in many in many different roles. I'm just wondering, what about this particular moment? What is it that worries you the most, or what what keeps you awake? What's what what what, what you think is 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 the most important issue? Uh, or, or or connected issues, hard to, to, to boil it down, I know, but just to get a sense of what's on your mind. Well, at this moment, and in fact, for the last few years, uh, the way climate has changed and uh, just look around how we see disasters every single day and the level of devastation has increased so much. Uh, no country is now uh, immune to climate impacts. Uh, but it's the global south, the developing countries who are facing the brunt of climate change and uh, how climate change is eroding 
the development gains that we had over the last few years and decades and making people you know far more vulnerable to future climate impacts and that that's what worries me uh, we have been aware of the problem for decades we also knew the solutions but it's the failure of political leadership that we are right into the crisis now which we could have easily averted uh, decades ago yeah yeah um what what makes you optimistic when you look around are there seeds of hope are there are there uh, elements trends things that that give you hope hajit what gives me hope is how uh, people uh, from the ground have been able to raise uh, their voices and uh, make leaders heard their concerns that we have reached a point where loss and damage which means climate impacts uh, are now going to be at the core of cop 27 climate conference in egypt um, in just a few days and that has happened because people uh, shared their stories and demanded their leaders to act and now many of the countries who never responded to people's needs such as the united states the european union mm-hmm. to a large extent and many of the rich countries are now coming to the table to discuss that and it is a fundamental issue because people who are facing these climate impacts do not have adequate support to recover from and this new system that we are demanding under the un is going to be a big help if we get it right yeah as you said coming to the table what what's your uh, what would you say what would you point to as as evidence of that um i'm interested uh was tremendous feeling of disappointment about cop 26 of course uh it wasn't a a black and white uh, you know uh, outcome there, there were elements that that were important what is it that gives you a sense that things are really ripe for change so fergal let me explain this has been a, a fairly long journey uh where in 1991 small island states clearly talked about the climate impacts in future particularly pointed towards sea level rise which we knew is is going to happen it was just about the uh, uh scale and a matter of time uh but rich countries did not pay attention to that topic on what happens if we really fail on mitigation and and also what about the emissions that are already logged in and which will lead to some level of warming and i'm talking of 1991 um rich countries almost snubbed uh, developing countries on this issue until 2007 where the issue of loss and damage uh, became a lot more prominent and since then we have seen some progress we got an institution in 2013 again after a massive fight in 2012 um but that institution has been rendered almost useless when it comes to providing finance and that has been a major challenge only now it's just a few weeks ago rich countries agreed that they are ready to discuss loss and damage finance as uh, the key issue at cop 27 and this has happened after a lot of pressure was put by civil society as climate action network our members and allies really up the ante at cop 26 we made that as a litmus test and in the last few months so of course in bonn um there was a glasgow dialogue which we got um you know 
against our demand of setting up a loss and damage finance facility. But that dialogue we always knew was not enough. But what that did, uh, it created space for countries to acknowledge that there is a gap in loss and damage finance. And that's when we heard for the first time from the US, from European Union, from Australia, New Zealand, and so on. Uh, But they were still not ready to talk about the kind of solutions that we were proposing. And that shift happened only in the last few weeks, where um, we also sent a letter signed by more than 400 organizations to the heads of delegations who met uh, in Cairo on 10th and 11th of September uh, to talk about the issue of loss and damage finance. And Fergal, I must tell you, this has happened uh, for the first time in the history of climate negotiations that are uh, meeting exclusively on loss and damage was organized where heads of delegations deliberated. And that led to an agreement on uh, putting loss and damage finance on the agenda. Uh, some details was, are still to be worked out in terms of how uh, it looks like, which will happen just before the COP. But overall, uh, we have reached a point where this is going to be the most prominent issue at COP. And we as civil society, as Climate Action Network, are going to push really hard to get uh, um, a decision which which means for people and not just a talk shop. Right. So, again, I'm interested to get your perspective on you you talk about civil society organizations and so forth. What makes you uh, confident that that actually has an impact is is what's driving uh, here, should we say, willingness to sit at the table. But you, you, you feel confident that uh, the civil society, the activism, that these voices actually are, are driving change? Well, absolutely. Uh, I have no doubt about it because when we made that as a litmus test for COP26, last year also loss and damage finance was not on the agenda. It was our pressure that forced a few governments to come to the table. And, you know, uh, thanks to uh, First Minister of Scotland, who uh, actually broke the ice and and de-tabooed the issue of loss and damage finance by providing £1 million. And and then uh, many philanthropies also came forward and it became a proposal of G77 and China, which is the largest uh, block of developing countries, uh, putting forth exactly the same demand that we have been making for the last few years. And uh, we didn't get the facility there, but since then, uh, we kept the pressure on and we, uh, being a network of 1,800 uh, organizations in more than 130 countries, we left no stone unturned uh, and we didn't waste any time, you know, just reaching out to negotiators in the capitals because, Fergal, that was an excuse because at COP26, they said, oh, we didn't come here with the agenda. We, uh, uh, we don't have enough details. So we also produced a paper on loss and damage finance facility uh, in May, just before the Glasgow Dialogue in June. So we have been consistently putting pressure and even responding to queries of negotiators very constructively and uh, putting uh, a lot of pressure and asking them to, one, putting loss and damage on the agenda and then uh, agree on a substantive outcome, which leads to uh, this facility or a new funding stream, to put it simply, uh, which is over and above the money that's going for adaptation and mitigation for the people who are suffering right now, you know, such as the devastating floods we saw in Pakistan, or look at how Somalia is is facing famine. Um, And, uh, you know, Venezuela uh, saw massive landslides and many countries are suffering. And now they should start getting support. 
So I, I would say that the pressure that we uh, built as civil society coordinating with developing countries has yielded results, has brought developed countries to the table to discuss this very issue. So can you tell us a little bit more about what kinds of solutions you're looking for in terms of the loss and damage, the finance mechanism, and uh, maybe what were some of the uh, barriers, I suppose, to this issue being addressed? I, I know that Oxfam recently did a, uh, a report. Uh, approximately uh, only a third of the... the- $70 billion that, that uh, is supposed to have been uh, made available has actually been made available, which isn't a very good uh, track record. Uh, but yeah, c- can you maybe just uh, t- talk a little bit about that, Harjeet? Sure. Uh, I think it's before I get into uh, what exactly we want under loss and damage finance, it's also important to recognize, Fergal, where we are at this moment. So we are living in a 1.2 degree warmer world. And which has led to the increased number of disasters and with increased intensity. Uh, At the same time, uh, we have also seen uh, sea levels rising, glaciers melting, oceans turning acidic. And this is at 1.2 degrees centigrade uh, of global warming. And the political agreements are to stay below 1.5, which we know uh, is going to be devastating because every fraction of warming is going to have devastating uh, impacts on people, uh, on economy and ecosystems, which means that we have to prepare ourselves for these disasters. And that's where adaptation comes in, which is the second pillar of climate action. You know, first one being mitigation to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and protecting forests. But because of the emissions continuously rising and we being at 1.2 degree temperature rise, disasters are already happening, which means that we have to help people who are now facing these disasters. And that's where loss and damage comes in. So at this juncture, all three pillars of climate action are equally important. We have to stay below 1.5, even that's going to be devastating, which means we need to prepare for these disasters. That means we have to scale up adaptation efforts and also have a mechanism so that people who suffer from impacts are able to recover from it. Uh, You know, their needs are met, their rights are protected. Now, having said that, the new stream of funding has to be needs-based has to respond to what people are facing right now and are going to face in future. And this is why we want this new finance facility to be part of the financial mechanism of UNFCCC. And it should actually look at the scale of funding that is needed uh, and then should channel that money to those countries. Now, the reason we want it under the UN and not, uh, you know, not just... Uh, depending on the humanitarian fine aid that comes in, because that's not enough. So you were referring to Oxfam report, the current support that's going um, out of that, which the governments have acknowledged is 70% is loan. And there's another report uh, which also mentions that the humanitarian financing is not enough. So in the last five years, uh, just about 50% of uh, humanitarian aid uh, went to countries, you know, based on their uh, appeals, humanitarian appeals, which means that we are nowhere near uh, in terms of meeting their um, needs. 
Uh, and, and it's also very clear that these humanitarian appeals do not represent the real cost of losses and damages. So that's why we want a new system uh, which plays a coordination role, you know, look, uh, the current uh, streams of financing, but also has the ability to channel funding. And that for us is an extremely important um, function of that new facility. There was 100 billion that, that was promised. Uh, that's not been uh, delivered. A very important uh, part of this picture is is clearly, uh, as you say, the structure uh, and sources of finance. Um, there are many initiatives to, to I guess, uh, bring in private finance as well. I don't know whether this would apply here in, in loss and damage, but also uh, in an environment where interest rates have been uh, going up dramatically. Uh, the, but I'm just wondering, uh, where, where, where do you see this, this money coming from? Uh, what kinds of things can be done with the way loans are, are structured, even included in this kind of funding? So... So you are right. We have to look at uh, where we stand in terms of macroeconomy. And uh, no doubt that uh, there are newer challenges, you know, starting with, with COVID. And we have been facing economic inequality. Uh, and, and now with food and energy prices going up, uh, uh, it's, it has caused problems uh, for people not only in the global south, but also in the global north. Uh, having said that, we need to look at what has caused the problem in the first place. We know that big corporations have made a lot more money in the last few years while majority of people on this planet are suffering because of rising inflation. Uh, and we also know that fossil fuel industry in particular uh, has made windfall profits uh, while people are struggling to uh, uh, have access to heating uh, people who are living in colder regions or even uh, people uh, in, in, in the tropical areas to have access to uh, energy uh, for their basic needs. So just imagine the inequality, which means that it's not lack of money that's a problem. It's the flow of money that's a problem. And, and this is where we need to put a spotlight on the nexus between these corporations and particularly fossil fuel uh, companies and governments uh, and how they have allowed these companies to make money at the expense of ordinary citizens. I think that is the biggest problem. And the reason we don't see, uh, you know, Green Climate Fund not getting sufficient um, uh, funds from the global north uh, and the crisis uh, that's happening right now in developing countries is, again, because some countries... Uh, are working in connivance with those rich corporations. Yeah, I mean, when you say that, it's, it's very interesting because I guess a fundamental question would be, what makes you believe that the Biden administration is acting out of, you know, as you say, humanitarian or social justice kind of uh, thinking or, or values? Um, it's pretty clear that what's been happening in terms of the inflation, in terms of energy prices, in terms of food prices, that's been uh, predicted and yet, all they're doing, uh, fundamentally what they're doing, is emphasizing the uh, Federal Reserve, emphasizing interest rates, which is causing all kinds of uh, pro problems around the world. But why should they? Why, right now, why would they come to the table? You are absolutely right. Majority of governments won't have social justice or tackling economic inequality or, or, or dealing with climate crisis on their agenda on their own, unless they face pressure. Uh, from uh, their electorate, uh, from citizens, 
And, and this is exactly what made the U.S. government shift its positions in the last uh, few years. And, and we know that although uh, inflation was one of the main reasons why they uh, they came up with the new act, uh, which definitely don't uh, you know doesn't go far enough uh, to tackle the climate crisis. But it's because of people pressure, and that's exactly what's also happening at the international level right now. You know, we have seen uh, Secretary John Kerry changing his position in a matter of days, uh, and it's and it's all on record. Where you know, first he says that you can't. Uh, uh, you know, get the institution, you can't talk about it. And then he says, yes, it's it's an important issue. So similarly, we have to make sure that these leaders are held to account, including Biden administration, and and only people pressure that's going to make them make them work and talk about social justice and tackling climate uh, crisis. So as I said earlier, Fergal, money is there. It's about making sure that we make polluters pay uh, for the losses and damages that, that that have been caused because of their actions and inactions, uh, and at the same time, we have to make sure that uh, you know uh, these these leaders come to the table to come up with with such uh, options so that we can actually uh, have a new system in place for dealing with loss and damage and have finance available for climate action in general. Yeah, yeah. Very interesting. Now, what should we expect? What would be a, an outcome that would uh, satisfy you, that would show uh, the commitment and the right direction and level of, of support uh, for, for loss and damage? But just more generally, I know uh, Greta Thunberg uh, recently, uh, she's not going, uh, and she just she said that the cops aren't working, really about attention-seeking and, and greenwashing and so forth. Clearly, uh, there are our issues in terms as well of the location in, in, in Egypt, which has a terrible human rights record. And uh, yeah, what what outcomes would you, are, are you hoping for and, and, and would make you, uh, would satisfy you to some extent? So f- first of all, I, I share Greta's frustration. Um, there is no doubt that we could have achieved a lot more in the last 30 years. And, and her, her, uh, uh, anger uh, in particular is valid because she had access to the heads of states and who n- who know about the issue, who know what we are what we are calling uh, for. Yet uh, they have not responded to our demands and 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 she making uh, those demands directly with them one on one. But at the same time, we also need to acknowledge that United Nations is the only place where all countries are t- treated equally. You know, it's one country, one vote, uh, unlike uh, G7s and G20s of the world. So we don't have any other fallback mechanism but to be in this space. And especially when we talk about global justice and climate change is a global issue. It has been caused by 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 people, uh, you know, a bunch of companies and governments and majority of developing countries are suffering. So it's a justice issue. So we have no other a place to go, so we have to be at the UN and make it make it work. That's one. Now, um, in terms of dealing with the with the climate problem, of course, we have to uh, put fossil fuel industry on notice, and we have to make sure that the windfall profits that fossil fuel companies are making out of the current crisis, and they are the ones who are responsible also for the climate crisis, have to pay up, and and that's that's number one thing. So we have to make sure that fossil fuel companies go out of business. And it needs to be done 
and and particularly in developing countries where they still have dependence on fossil fuels for their energy for their economy you know they need to be supported for that just transition so that's the whole thing about fossil fuel industry and second is going to be important uh, which is finance in general for mitigation for adaptation and third is loss and damage finance uh for so people who are suffering from impacts right now they need to see a system that is that is emerging from the un process which needs to help them uh in future and of course the current humanitarian aid has to be scaled up so phasing out fossil fuels clearly essential uh key step in the process how do you look at this when it comes to the global south where there are major issues of energy access versus this question of decarbonization and you do see well it, quite quite a bit of critical uh judgment about about various projects in in the global south and africa and so forth and yet in in in, in india particularly as well and the there was the, the the language was changed at the end of the cop 26 to to you know deemphasize the the importance of i guess uh reducing access to uh, reliance on coal but this question of uh energy access how should we think about this when it comes to countries in the global south well that's exactly the reason why countries like like india demanded you know the change of language from phase out to phase down because uh, millions of people in india still do not have access to adequate energy and same is the case for africa uh, so for us uh, we have to make sure that people have equitable access to to energy and uh, to clean energy and and this is where we need to make sure that the investments in renewable energy uh, are scaled up uh, the challenge has been that we uh, have not really put um, fossil fuels in the paris agreement it was the first time in glasgow uh, that the language on fossil fuels finally got into the climate pact but it's only coal not oil and gas and in at this very moment oil is you know gas is seen as a bridge fuel which actually it cannot be because you know gas is no no less uh, uh dangerous because of a uh, number of reasons so we have to first make sure that we recognize all three fossil fuels as a as a problem coal oil and gas yeah but is it a bit i'm being a bit simplistic here but phasing out fossil fuels can you uh do that without looking at questions of 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 sources of energy of renewable energy because the longer that uh, fossil fuel companies avoid investing in or investing tiny sums of money in in renewable energy there there are major problems with phasing out the fuel that the world you know runs on absolutely you know if you look at the current level of dependence it's still 80% of our global energy comes from uh, fossil fuels do you have do you have questions do you have uh, requests do you have uh, are you looking for this are you asking fossil fuel companies to increase their investment in renewable energy of course but it's not fossil fuel companies who are going to do on their own unless governments push them to do it unless governments create policies and regulate them so that they go out of business in the next few years it the problem lies with governments and their governance which has not led to increased investments in renewable energy that is the problem yeah so the hands off approach they haven't been 
uh, involved. Well, in in Europe, that's not true. There's been uh, nationalization and uh, various initiatives there. I think in one of the statements that that was made by one of the organizations that you work with said that the COP27, at COP27, polluters must be put in the dock and be held accountable. So, yes, it's the polluters of the fossil fuel companies, but the the, the interrelationship between the, the, the fossil fuel companies and the governments as well. Absolutely. And and if governments, and, and you're right, uh, Europe is definitely ahead uh, of, of the US uh, or Canada. And and this is where uh, Europe can do a, a, a lot better and actually uh, set the direction for other rich countries to follow. Uh, but the, the reality is that overall, if you look at the influence of fossil fuel industry remains, and that's why we also have a, have a campaign to kick polluters out of COP27. And you will see uh, voices coming up to actually uh, put a spotlight on how they have been influencing negotiations for a very long time. And that's why you don't find fossil fuels in, in the agreement. It's only now we have had, uh, you know, um, uh, um, a, a foot in the door uh, to also discuss about fossil fuels in these climate negotiations, which have been have been you know avoided for a very long time. And the fact that this, why why has it been held in, in Sharm el-Sheikh? Why, why is it being held in Egypt? It doesn't really give the right kind of uh, signal, does it? Well, you know, uh, the organization of COP has has a different pattern. So it moves from one region to the other and then countries bid for it. And Africa decided that it should be uh, hosted by Egypt. So it's a, it's a very democratic uh, decision by African countries to, to choose Egypt. Uh, and, and of course, we do, as Climate Action Network, we do recognize uh, the uh, issues related to uh, human rights and, and the context in which uh, this COP this COP is being uh, organized. So, so we are very, very well aware of that because for us, uh, you know, there can be no climate justice without human rights, and our struggles are are fundamentally linked to hold those in power accountable uh, to their citizens and to demand a safe, just, and peaceful future for all. And underlying this is is a real sense of grievance as well, and this question of reparations that you know the countries that have contributed the least in many cases to you know the, the carbon emissions are uh, bearing the, the the heaviest cost at the moment and likely to 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 in the future. Can you talk about about, about reparations and and you share your views on that, Harjit? Well, absolutely. You know, when we talk about loss and damage finance, Fergal, it's basically about compensation and reparations, even if we don't use that language in climate negotiations, because uh, at UNFCCC, you cannot get an agreement uh, where uh, one country can veto. So which means that getting that language in the in the negotiating text is not is not possible. But the spirit uh, has to be about compensation and reparation. So rich countries are not going to do a favor if they agree to loss and damage finance. So it is a more positive, constructive uh, way of cooperating and showing solidarity. Uh, but as I said, essentially, the principles are about paying reparations and compensation. And can you also just talk a little bit about the uh, structure that the UNFCC is, is clearly a central uh, pillar here? Uh, what, what impact and in, in what ways are you looking for change in the role of, the, for example, the IMF and the World Bank? The World Bank has uh, controversy. The, the, the head at the moment uh, seems to be denying uh, you know, climate change. And, and the World Bank is continuing to support um, 
all kinds of uh, uh, problematic uh, energy in investments and, and the IMF also. Um, to what extent do they fall under your ambit of, of uh, targets? Well, they absolutely are. And and uh, with what Malpa said um, in in uh, one of the conversations about his his or not talking about climate change uh, clearly exposes where World Bank is. And World Bank and IMF have been quite problematic in terms of their funding uh, for fossil fuels, uh, knowing fully well that it's going to cause more destruction um, uh, now and even in future. So, um, of course, uh, you know, because when we talk about climate finance, Fergal, we are not just talking about those $100 billion, uh, which are very much part of the this negotiations, but also financial flows, uh, which, which run into trillions. And the amount of money that is needed to fix the climate problem and, and, and transform towards, you know, clean energy is going to require trillions. And even uh, the latest UNEP emissions gap report uh, mentions that we need at least four to six trillion dollars a year uh, to make that global uh, transformation to a low carbon economy, and and this does not in, even include uh, the uh, cost of losses and damages and adaptation. So massive amount of money is needed, and that's where the role of uh, you know that's why we look at financial flows and role of these multilateral institutions such as World Bank, IMF, and you know regional banks. Uh, is extremely important and how they also influence uh, private investments. What alternative is there if you're looking at these eye-popping sums of money, four, five, six trillion dollars you're, you're talking about? Loan finance is problematic and it would be good if you talked a little bit about the pressures that that, that causes, uh, the kinds of debts that have been taken on, the interest rates and so forth. And this increasing initiative to to bring private capital into Global South and to to de-risk the capital, to find ways in which financial institutions, uh, the, the, the risk of investment is reduced. I mean, at the same time also, there's, there's various uh, natural capital initiatives and offset initiatives which are uh, very much under the, in really a, a neoliberal paradigm. They're part of the this question of, finance and, and the way it operates today clearly that cannot be the the underpinnings of these kinds of uh, sums of money so Fergal, the most important thing is that the incremental approach is not going to work we need transformation and now this word transformation is being used more often which is something that we have been talking for a very long time and same is true uh, for transformation of the financial systems um, and and this is where we need to look at you know all these structures and and processes you know how financial markets work uh, how we need to nudge that that financial behavior uh, through various public policy interventions we need to look at taxes you know how do we tax carbon in particular um, and when, you know while it sounds like a huge amount of money but it's relatively small if you look at uh, the share of total financial assets managed it's just 1.5 to 2% uh, so it's you know, and we know that when we needed money, trillions were made available. Uh, be it tackling the financial crisis in two thousand and eight, or or the COVID crisis, or even uh, the Russian war in Ukraine. But they're very problematic, Harjeet. Each of those, in their own way, are very problematic. The monies that were provided to bail out the banks that went into the hands of the banks. The you know, and each each of those exactly uh, exactly. 
No, we are not. We are not saying that the that the that the money was spent well, but the point is money was made available. So, which means when you look for money, money can be can be available. But on what terms? On what terms? How do you change this basis? I mean, because there's at the World Bank, the multilateral financial institutions are very much behind this. You know, uh, public private partnerships. Uh, exactly. th- th- these kinds of you know uh, p- private capital uh, hugely reliant on that. That's not the way forward. Uh, that's exactly uh, right. So that's not the uh, way forward. And we also know that um, it's deeply problematic when you provide them in the form of loans and especially when countries are already facing the debt crisis. That's why I said we need a total transformation of the financial systems. And we we need to look at how money is made available, um, you know, uh, using the terms that are more favorable to developing countries. You know, we have been talking of number of other issues as well, which are connected. It's also about making... Yes, yes. Are you active on debt jubilees? Uh, yeah, yeah. We, in fact, uh, released a report very recently, which talked about how if there is no climate action, if money is not provided, sub-Saharan Africa is going to be, uh, you know, under debt burden of a of trillion dollars in the next few years. So, uh, so we do look at the debt and climate nexus and, and we do raise how, you know, Forget about those trillions, even that $100 billion, as I mentioned a while ago, 70% of, of the money that has been provided so far as part of that $100 billion commitment happens to be loan. Now, that's absolutely unfair and unjust uh, because if that money that was supposed to be a seed money to, to actually leverage trillions and even that money is loan, which means that countries are going to be really uh, uh, you know, in, a, in, a, in a deep problem uh, going forward. And that's why we need to look at what other forms of financial uh, instruments that can be made available in terms of guarantees, in terms of uh, looking at, uh, you know, for example, when we talk about many sources, we say you, know, you need to tax uh, fossil fuel companies, you know, put, put a levy on that. You need to tax uh, financial uh, system. And in fact, uh, there has been a talk of putting a levy on financial transactions. Um, we need to uh, put a tax uh, and levy on international air passenger. Um, so, uh, so that we can, you know, tax high emitting sectors. So there are a number of ways money can be raised. And I must tell you, and, and shifting fossil fuel subsidies, which can all, uh, um, help raise uh, trillions of dollars. So, uh, and IMF's own analysis says that the fossil fuel subsidies, if you look that, look at them in totality, it amounts to $11 million a minute, $11 million a minute. You're very active in the, in the, the fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty. And right. can you talk a little bit about that, Harjeet? Sure. And, and it uh, circles back to the point that I was making earlier that um, fossil fuels have not been mentioned even in the Paris Agreement. So imagine uh, in climate negotiations, we have been talking a lot more about the demand side, reducing emissions, but not the supply side. If you continue to, um, to extract fossil fuels and continue to explore more resources, how can you fix the problem? And and we have been raising this issue for a very long time, but we realize that unless we have uh, a more, uh, you know, system in place, we will not be able to deal with it. And that's why we have we are demanding a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty um, uh, complementing the Paris Agreement uh, so that we can actually put a spotlight on uh, fossil fuel industry uh, and also talk about how we need to support countries uh, who are, are dependent on it, and 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 you know, by simply saying that we'll become net zero by 2050 is not going to be enough, and that's why this treaty initiative talks puts equity and justice 
uh, at the very core. Because if you talk about Congo, for instance, um, has about 60% of its oil revenues uh, coming from, uh, you know, for, for its economy, uh, uh, coming from oil. Uh, and you know, if you look at Angola, it's again more than 40%. But if you talk about countries like UK, Canada, US, uh, their uh, share of, uh, of uh, government revenue from oil is almost negligible. And look at their GDP per capita. It's you know, several times of the countries that I mentioned. So we know uh, that we, we can't just uh, immediately uh, uh, talk about you know, a stop to fossil fuels. We have to have a plan in place. And that's why international cooperation uh, is extremely important. And that's why we demand. So the treaty uh, has three pillars. So one, uh, no new exploration and expansion. Second, phasing out fossil fuels equitably. And third, supporting just transition. And all three are, are interconnected. And that's what we have been demanding um, to happen. And we have seen massive, massive support coming from, um, the, from the Nobel laureates, for example, 111 Nobel laureates endorse the treaty. We have seen them, thousands of scientists and academics. Uh, we have seen young people coming forward. Um, about 70 cities and, and subnational governments have endorsed. And recently, Vanuatu spoke uh, uh, about endorsement of the treaty on the floor of UN General Assembly, Timor Leste uh, president has supported. So yeah, we are we are seeing a massive uh, surge of support um, in terms of uh, having a treaty that complements Paris Agreement. Very interesting. And where exactly does the supply of energy and the renewable energy focus fit in here? It's Harjit. So that's where we talk about just transition. Uh, so to help developing countries. Um, um, move, have more access to renewable energy sources and their jobs are protected. That's where we talk about. Uh, so, yeah. So on one hand, we need to phase out fossil fuel equitably, then also making sure that uh, communities and countries have access to renewable energy as part of just transition. Very interesting. Very interesting. And you wear many hats, Harjeet, one of which is uh, this uh, Satat Sampada, uh, organic farming, social enterprise. Can you talk a little bit about that just before we finish? Sure. Um, so this, so the uh, seed germinated um, in our mind of this initiative post Paris. Um, uh, so after we got the agreement, um, I, I returned from there extremely frustrated. Uh, you know, while on one hand we know that at least all two hundred countries are at least walking in the same direction, but we were not going fast enough. And and these international negotiations can be very frustrating. So. Um, so and it's very time taking. We know that you know it takes years and decades. So I and then my wife has been uh, working with urban poor and she has been dealing with the exodus because of the agrarian crisis in India. So you know both of us were discussing. You know what what is the solution? What what can we do? Uh, something more directly, more tangible. And that's why we we actually uh, thought of uh, establishing a social enterprise called Satat Sampada, which actually means. Um, nature forever, or actually, satat means sustainable. Uh, so, how we can make our natural resources more sustainable? Which means that if we promote solutions such as organic farming, uh, which is done by smallholder farmers, we can actually deal with a lot of problem. You know, uh, for for instance, we can create jobs. You know, farmers have better income; they don't have to uh, you know face distress migration. We also make sure that uh, the the soil fertility is increased um, and people and who are consuming food that is that is being grown using 
um, chemicals, chemical fertilizers and pesticides, which is also affecting their health and environment, we can we can move away from that. So we thought that one initiative can actually have multiple uh, social, economic, and environmental benefits. So that's how we decided to start uh, farming ourselves. We are now working with hundreds of uh, farmers uh, in India, and and we are supplying organic food uh, through an e-commerce so that people have easy access. Uh, they can buy. Uh, uh, so we are selling that in the national capital region, so in Delhi uh, and and the surrounding cities. So now it's a full-fledged initiative that that provides farmers a platform to sell their uh, products. So yeah, sounds like you've got a lot going on, and uh, we're COP twenty-seven coming up now. Um, I wish you all the best with the great work you're doing, and thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for thank you for having me. Just as 50 years ago, when the world used international treaties to defuse the threats posed by nuclear weapons, today, the world needs a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty, a global initiative to phase out fossil fuels, support dependent economies, workers and communities to diversify away from fossil fuels, ensure 100% access to renewable energy globally, and importantly, ensure a just transition that leaves no one behind. You can show your support for this vital initiative at fossilfueltreaty.org. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.